This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 228th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is presented by HBO's The Defiant Ones, a docuseries that chronicles the unlikely yet unbreakable bond of trust and friendship between Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, for your consideration in all categories, including outstanding documentary series. By pure coincidence, my guest today is none other than the aforementioned Jimmy Iovine, a master of sound and reinvention, who is, without a doubt, one of the most significant figures in the history of the music industry, of which he has been a part for nearly a half century. Iovine's story is remarkable. His first job in the music business was sweeping the floors of a studio. But, through hard work, talent, and a little bit of luck, he became a recording engineer serving the likes of John Lennon and Bruce Springsteen, then a record producer for artists such as Patti Smith, Tom Petty, and U2, then a record label chief who guided the careers of Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, Eminem and Lady Gaga, and many others, and then an entrepreneur who partnered with Dre on Beats Electronics, a manufacturer of headphones, earphones, and speakers that they co-founded in 2006 and sold to Apple in 2014 for $3.2 billion, making it the largest acquisition in Apple's history. Iovine has remained involved with Beats and Apple Music ever since, but come August, he will be taking on a reduced role as a consultant. It is his relationship with Dre that is at the center of the Defiant Ones, Alan Hughes' acclaimed four-part HBO docuseries that aired from July 9th through July 12th in 2017, and it is also a large part of what we discussed as well. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by our film editor, Greg Kilday, to discuss the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences new member invitation list, which was announced today. 928 people were invited to join the organization, the largest class ever invited in its history, and the vast majority, based on past years, will in fact join. That will bring the number of eligible voters this season to somewhere around 8,176, larger than at any other time since the late 30s into the mid-40s, when all Guild members were allowed to vote, even though they weren't officially Academy members. Greg, thank you for coming in to dissect this with me. All right. So... I guess let's start out with just the big headlines from the day. Who were the highest profile members of this year's class? Well, I mean, first of all, I think the biggest headline is just the sheer number. Yeah. It's the biggest class by far. Even five years ago, the Academy would welcome in 100 plus, maybe 200 people a year. So the Academy 
is dramatically changing. Yeah. You know, certainly there are some very famous names, J.K. Rowling, who, in addition to creating the Harry Potter franchises, moved into screenwriting with the Fantastic Beasts movie. Melissa Etheridge, who has won an Oscar, but now is formally invited. Kendrick Lamar, Dave Chappelle, Amy Schumer. It was a good morning for some of the actresses on HBO shows because Amelia Clark of Game of Thrones and Evan Rachel Wood yes, of Westworld, yeah. Westworld both made it in. And they weren't alone from actually also Amelia Clark's co-star Lena Headey's also in there. And I know I noticed a, a few other folks jumped out to me, Mindy Kaling and a whole bunch that, that we'll come to. But I guess we should also note who is not on this list this year, Kobe Bryant who was a high-profile winner earlier this year at the 90th Oscar ceremony for his animated short, Dear Basketball. We had heard in advance he was not going to be invited, despite initially clearing several of the hurdles to be on the list. I guess the Academy, basically the way it works is each branch of the Academy comes up with a proposed list of members. It then goes to a committee comprised of one of the governors from each of the branches of the Academy and then to the full board of governors. Somewhere along the line there, people said Kobe, having only made one film, has not yet distinguished himself enough in film to be invited. The same, I guess, was probably the case for Brian Fogel, who won Best Documentary Feature for Icarus this year. But it doesn't mean they won't get in in the future. In fact, this year, one of the people who was invited was Nicole Rocklin, who was one of the producers of Spotlight, which won the Best Picture Oscar three years ago. So it's never over, but it's strange how they, sometimes there's there's little rhyme or reason for who does and doesn't make these lists. Yeah. Well, of course, according to their rules, an Oscar nomination and even an Oscar win doesn't guarantee admittance. It kind of puts you on the list of possible invitees. Each of the 17 branches have slightly different criteria. Yes. Most of them require at least two significant credits, mm -hmm. although there are certainly cases on the list here where they seem to have stretched definitions yes. uh, in order to invite other folks in. Well, yeah, and these are, you know, nobody's saying any of these folks aren't talented, but you think, look at Justin Simeon, a very talented publicist turned filmmaker with Dear White People, which was then made into a TV series, which is what he's primarily focused on. That's his one film credit that I see here, but he is invited you have people even in you know certain other branches, like we saw a guy in the visual effects branch who actually has no credits listed beside his name, although he is a SciTech award winner and who has a long career, I guess, in you know developing equipment that is used for visual effects. So they all can stretch the rules if they'd like. There are certain extenuating circumstance clauses, but it's interesting because it's sometimes hard to understand. For instance, like this year, several of the writers invited to join were first-time feature filmmakers in that capacity and were nominated but did not win, yet they're invited, whereas first-time people in other branches, like we said with Kobe and Brian Fogel, that was his first documentary feature, those two are not invited, even though they actually left with statuettes. So go figure. But Part of the reason I guess this is the biggest class ever and part of the reason the last few years have also been there, you know, the biggest class ever up to those points is something called the 2020 Initiative. Can you explain what that is and why it came about? You know, back in, in 2016, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who is then president of the Academy, announced an initiative called the 2020 Initiative, which was basically setting the goalpost and it proposed that the Academy double the number 
of women and people of color who are members of the academy. Now, at the time, 25% of the academy was female and just 8% was people of color. Mm -hmm. Now, with these new invitees, should they all join? And that's a question mm -hmm. we, can, we can ask whether they are all likely to join. Right. But should they all join? Potentially, the numbers shift now. So the academy will be comprised of 16% people of color. Meeting the goal there for 2020. It's met the goal. Some people would say the goal wasn't high enough, but right. <laughs> it will technically have met the goal. Right. It's much harder, given the number of men who are in the what we now call the old academy, yeah. to change the percentages of women. So while this list of invitees is 49% female, if they all join the number of women in the academy moves up to about 31%. Right. Well, still quite a ways to go to get to 50. Yeah. So I guess another thing that in some ways was maybe a add-on to the 2020 initiative certainly has been a priority for the academy since then is making the organization more international as well. You know, it started out as an L.A area organization. They grew to include the East Coast eventually, although they were still a small part of it for a long time. They didn't have screenings and things like that. Then that grew to include more activities on the East Coast. Then the organization slowly but surely, just really in the last few years, has become more of an international organization because they feel, you know, cinema is now an international art form. There are great people in all corners of the world and they want to bring them into the group. And so this year, if all these people who were invited join, we have confirmed with the Academy that 69 countries around the world will be represented in the group. How will that impact the, the actual award season and the process of trying to campaign and, and reach these people? Well, it's going to be a real challenge for the campaigns. I mean, you have a lot of interesting on the directors list, for example, Luca Guadagnino, who directed Call Me By Your Name, and the Swedish director, Ruben Osland, who directed The Square. I mean, they're great people to have in the academy. Mm -hmm. I think the question is going to be, if you're out of the country, particularly if you're out of the country and you're working, how many of the new films that come out really just one on top of the other in the fall are you going to be able to see and keep up with, even if you're being sent screeners? Right, and I guess we should say that the academy may be somewhat anticipating questions about how are you even going to track down these people. They've decided this year to begin becoming the central clearinghouse for any communications that studios or distributors want to have with members, they say, we will guarantee that if you pay us a handling fee, whatever you have, a screener, a mailing, whatever that falls within our rules, that we will get it to the address on file if they've provided one. So that's no longer a concern. That was a concern the last few years, because how are you going to track down some of these guys who are really in far-flung places? Now that's not the issue, but as you say, they may not be in those places or they may not, you know, it's not the same thing as seeing if you're being lobbied about Dunkirk and you're in South Korea, I yeah. think that they're not going to set up special IMAX screenings for you there and it's going to be a very different experience. Well, and I think the one area that's really going to be impacted are the true end-of-year releases. Mm -hmm. Now, you can have a film that plays Venice and it's on the fall circuit, gets a lot of buzz and isn't released until December. But if you have a film like The Post last season, mm -hmm. which literally no one sees until the end of November, right. and you know there was some surprise that that film didn't do better than it did, it may be because you know, in the old days, you could reach a sizable number of Academy members in and around Los Angeles and New York 
with last-minute screenings. Now it's going to be harder for a film that kind of pops up at the very end of the season. Absolutely. Well, something that really stood out to me, and I think it is worth discussing, is I think anyone with any decency would support the objective here of trying to make the Academy more diverse and obviously the industry more diverse. But the question is how you go about that in, a, in the most effective way. And so I guess I kind of feel like the Academy is doing is pulling more of the weight than the industry itself is. And I wonder if that actually can kind of backfire to have the tail wagging the dog. The industry, you know, the people who I think really have the ability to help people establish careers who otherwise have not been getting those chances are agents and managers and studios and other gatekeepers like that. If you get invited into the Academy, that does not, in my opinion, get you better opportunities just by being in the Academy. It might for a day raise your profile or whatever a little bit, but it generally works in the reverse direction. And the Academy up to this point with absolutely glaring, sure, there are absolutely glaring exceptions, generally was seeking to recognize people who had already become standouts in the film field. Absolutely, there were friendships and things that got people through as well who did not belong there. I think Charlton Heston's son is an example that people often go back to. All due respect to him and other people's you know, spouses and whatever. But now what's what we're seeing is perhaps in an effort to meet these, these 2020 goals, we're seeing a lot of people invited, particularly by the actors branch of the Academy, who did not make their names in film and really have not done particularly standout work, in my opinion, in film, certainly relative to what they've done in other media. So just to give a few examples, again, with the greatest respect to these people as great talents in their other areas, you've got four people from The Simpsons who were invited to the actors branch this year, Yardley Smith, Harry Shearer, Julie Kavner, and Hank Azaria. You've got the two that we mentioned from Game of Thrones. And then you got a bunch of people who I just, you know, see primarily as standouts in the area of the small screen, Christine Baranski, Andre Brower, Allison Brie, Jamie Camille and Gina Rodriguez from Jane the Virgin, Anna Klumski, Randall Park, Wendell Pierce, Gene Smart, Amber Tamlin. Again, these are terrific performers on TV. Then you get into theater. You've got Audra McDonald, who's won more Tonys than any other performer in history. And then you've got Tammy Blanchard as well. But I don't think anyone could even tell you any film roles that Audra McDonald has played where where she was actually acting in it. I mean, you'd have to go really look that up. And then you've got a bunch of stand-up comedians that were in this year's class of people invited to join the actors branch. Hannibal Burris, best known as the guy who was the first to really bring Bill Cosby accusations out into the open. Dave Chappelle, George Lopez, Sarah Silverman, Damon Wayans, all hilarious at stand-up. I'm not really sure there's anything, though, about their film resumes that merits inclusion in this particular organization. But you and I have talked about this a lot and I think you look at it a little differently as more of sort of their potential. You know, it's an interesting question. And just looking at some of the actors who who got invited, I mean, you've got Eileen Atkins, who's who's a great stage actress. Now, her, her film credits don't equal the part she's had on the stage. But that doesn't mean she's not a great actress. And if she had been given a great part on film, she wouldn't have been up to it. And also that... She's not smart enough to judge other performances on film. Mm-hmm. You know, Christine Baranski had say the same thing. I've loved her on The Good Wife. Yeah. You know, I, I wish we'd had a chance to see her more on film. Yeah. Although she'll be coming up against in Mamma Mia too. Yes. So it, to some extent, in, in some of these cases, I think the Academy is, you know, making up for the fact 
that these are really talented people who, in a perfect world, if they wanted to have had great film parts, would have gotten them for whatever reason they didn't. Right. But I mean, you could argue, not to be glib here, but like every actor in Hollywood feels that if they'd been given a chance, they could do something great. That's true. But, you know, as opposed to a relatively unknown actor or actress, these people, for the most part, we've seen their work and we can judge it in another medium. I mean, you you go into the documentary area. I mean, there's an interesting case there Mm -hmm. in terms of Yancey Ford, who directed Strong Island. Now, Yancey, this is his first film that he's directed. If you go on IMDb, he has just one directing credit. Mm -hmm. But he worked for a long time as an executive at PBS, working on documentaries there. So he's an accomplished name in the documentary field just broke through this past year with a very personal film. I take no issue with somebody like Yancey and actually with the doc community. It's The line is a little bit more blurred there because basically TV finances a lot of the films that then get an Oscar qualifying run and then air on TV afterwards. So the doc people, I see that the line is a little bit blurred, but I just, my thing is if the Academy still is going to be as it was intended to be at the creation of it, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, I just feel like when you start blurring the lines tremendously, particularly with on-screen talent and directors and things between film and TV and film and stand-up comedy, you really risk losing your identity and your mission and all of that. And I understand why they're doing it. I don't fault their motives. I just wonder if it's trying to shoehorn in members in order to meet numbers that were sort of just arbitrarily created. Let's double our numbers in four years. And really, I feel like it's not on the Academy, ultimately, to be leading this push. It, they, it is the industry, it's the rest of all the people around us here to give the Academy more worthy candidates to invite. Well, I mean, I think the Academy is in a catch-22. For the average man in the street, they're the face of the film industry. Now, it's true the Academy doesn't decide what movies get made or who gets cast in movies. But when the Academy Awards are held, you know, they take the hits for what is nominated or what, for what's not nominated. Right. To some extent, I do think, you know, you're, you're correct, Scott, that just being in the Academy doesn't mean you're going to get a great part down the line. But for some of these people, there are networking opportunities. You know, for others, it does raise their profile a bit. And even in, in the world of foreign financing, if you have a choice between two actors of relatively equal weight, mm-hmm. and you can say one of them is an Academy member and one isn't, you know, maybe that helps. Yeah. So it's it's just a really difficult question. I mean, yes, they're, they're trying to push the industry forward, and you can argue it's not ultimately their responsibility. And yet if the industry doesn't move forward, they're going to be blamed. As, as they were for the Oscar So White years, which is what sort of started this all. And I guess it will be interesting to see where we go from here. Regardless, we offer our congratulations to all 928 new members. And Greg Kilday, thank you for coming in to talk about them. Okay, thank you. And now for my interview with Jimmy Iovine. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of Beats Electronics on Apple's Culver City campus, the 65-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how he got into music and then into the music business, learned how to work a control room console, and then was given his first chances to show what he could do as an engineer for no less an artist than John Lennon, how shortly thereafter, working as an engineer for Bruce Springsteen left him with a work ethic that has served him ever since, starting shortly thereafter with his first opportunities to produce records, records that yielded hits for Patti Smith, Because the Night, 
Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Don't Do Me Like That, Stevie Nicks, Edge of Seventeen, U2, Desire, and the list goes on. Why, while still in his 30s, he decided he no longer wanted to produce music, but instead to run a record label, and how he wound up co-founding with Ted Field in 1989 and co-running from then until 2014, Interscope Records, which backed Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Tupac, Gwen Stefani, Trent Reznor, Marilyn Manson, Eminem, Nelly Furtado, the Pussycat Dolls, and Lady Gaga, among many other elite artists. Why he and Dr. Dre in particular bonded over each other's sonic prowess, and why, starting in 2006, they decided to not only make music together, but also to make audio equipment, resulting in beats, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hey, you're welcome. We always begin with just a couple of basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Brooklyn, New York, 1953. My dad was a longshoreman. My mother was a secretary, and I had a sister, Janet. Do you remember a specific moment as a kid, maybe even a specific song, when you fell in love with music? Well, anybody my age, you like music like everyone else does. But when it penetrates your being and your id, there's always a moment. And for me and anyone at my age, it was Ed Sullivan, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones after that. And that was just, that's when it made me realize that it was bigger than music. Was it something, though, that as a kid you were even thinking then, maybe I can get into this business in some way? or You, what st- it- you start the day after the show. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I was like 11, I think, or 10 or 11. And the next day, you hustle, you hustle, you try to get, you know, it was early in the year, so there was no Christmas coming up, so you got to figure out a way to get a guitar, you know, and <laughs> everybody's hustling and starting a band. And you hated school, right? That's what I get. I hated from... every second of school. <laughs> so were people, though, telling you in your life, all right, it's great to pursue music in a band or whatever, but in terms of your future, be realistic. You should work on X, Y, or Z. Was there something people were encouraging you to focus on? Well, I, mean, I come from, a, I come from a, a small neighborhood, an Italian neighborhood, where it was all about unions and stuff like that. So my father, you know, had a job for me down the docks that, you know, was waiting for me if I wanted it. And I didn't want to do that. You know, they wanted me to go to college as well. Not only that, it was the Vietnam War was around. And I'm like, if I hate high school, man, I'm going to hate Vietnam, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, okay, I got to, so they had the, they had the ferment, the college deferment. Yeah. And then two years into college, I got, they got the lottery. And that was... That means that you get, whether you're going to get picked or not, they were drafting up to like number 135, and I got number 268. So I was like, that day I'm like, I'm out of here, you know? (laughs) Right. And told my parents that I wanted to go work in music, and I found somebody who got me a job for free. Well, so actually, got, uh, can we break that down a little bit? Because it's a, kind yeah. of a, a early example of how you are able to endear yourself in a way to almost anybody. This is somebody who you was like a friend of a friend or something. Like, yeah. Can you explain that? Ellie Greenwich was probably her Carol King were probably the two biggest songwriters of the decade, meaning as far as the Brill Building was concerned. There was Cynthia Mann and Barry Mann as well. Mm-hmm. But Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry, her husband, Carol King and Jerry Goffin were three were the three people that wrote all the Phil Spectors, all the Shirelles hits, all those records. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. 
So I met her, and she was doing commercials at the time, and oh, it must have been very early 70s, like 70 or something like that. I was 17, 18 years old. And I used to just sit on her floor with this friend of mine. They used to write commercials together and just listen to the commercials, or how they were writing commercials. I, you know, I didn't know anything about anything. And what happened was she, she was doing an album at the time. She was trying to do her version of Tapestry. Mm-hmm. It was called Let It Be Written, Let It Be Sung. Mm-hmm. And I started going to the sessions. And I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in the world. You know, you go to the session and lights are down and everything's candle lit, you know, and the engineer's behind the board, you know, and then all of a sudden the engineer, it's crazy, the engineer at the end of the session, he gets up, he's ready to leave, and he's got like a brown leather bag. I had never seen anything like that before. I said, this guy's got a bag? (laughs) It was the coolest look. It was rawhide. It was incredible. I said, oh, man. And then all of a sudden, this really pretty girl came to pick him up. I said, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so from sweeping floors at 19 as your first job in the music industry, right? How, two years later, do you wind up actually behind one of these consoles? Like, Can you connect the dots between... Well, how you learn is you clean them. And then you put things on them, and then you help the person. There's an, there's an engine. A hierarchy is a producer, an engineer, an assistant engineer, and an assistant's assistant, right? The guy who's learning. Right. I was the low guy. So I would get a lot of familiarities working on people's sessions and watching, and then every now and then they let me do something, you know, set up a microphone. They show me how to set up the drums one day. This way, they, it was over a week. Mm-hmm. Then it became my responsibility to set up the drums. Then you, you learn how to do a few other things, and then it becomes your responsibility. And before you know it, you're not ready for prime time, but they gave you a shot. Right. For you, I guess, again, Ellie kind of maybe helped out early on and you end up at A&R Records? A&R Studios, A&R, A&R, A&R Studios. Recording Studios. It was Phil Ramone's studio and I had an 89-day trial. On the 89th day, the guy walked in. I'd like for a lot of young people to hear this because on the 89th day, the guy walked in, he said, this is not for you. This is not what you should be doing. You don't have what it takes and I'm really sorry, but you should go back to school. I said, man, if I don't go back to school, I'm going down to docks. I can't go, you know, I can't get fired. He goes, like, nothing I can do, Jimmy. This really isn't for you. So I went down the street. I called Ellie Greenwich. I told her, I said, if I go home, I'm toast. She goes, don't go home yet. Stop at the record plant. Mm-hmm. Which so was I, another studio. Recording studio owned by a guy named Royce Sakala. Yeah. Who eventually became my teacher. I went down there, and there were these two Italian guys, Eddie Germano and Royce Sakala. Eddie was the manager. And they liked me. That was it. I had nothing to offer. I mean, I couldn't even, I was like 120 pounds. I had no (laughs) skills, no nothing. So they just hired me. I mean, I did everything from paint their boats to (laughs) work in the studio, you know, cleaning it up and putting every day, make sure there's razor blades and grease pencils to mark the tape and there's pads and paper and tape and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And you you sit basically as a secretary in the beginning. And then, then, you know, the guy will say, here's a microphone, you know, let me show you how I do a cello, Mm -hmm. you know, or how we do a bass guitar. We do it direct, but yet we use the amp as well. And I go, okay, okay. And you learn that. And then sooner or later, 
you get thrown into a situation where you have to use what you learned, mm-hmm. you know? And in your case, I guess you kind of got thrown in the deep end, right? Because John Lennon showed up. Well, what happened was, and it was a really beautiful story because it's, it's, it's somewhat connected my entire life, which is I was home. It was Easter Sunday. I think I was 20. Maybe I just turned 20. Mm-hmm. My boss called my house, and it was Easter Sunday. And he said, I need you to come in to answer the phones. I said, okay. You know, I wasn't going to get fired again. Right. There wasn't a chance. <laughs> so I never thought twice about it, you know. And I go to my mom, and she goes, bananas. She goes, you're not leaving here. Are you crazy going to work on Easter Sunday? We have to go to church. Your aunts and uncles are all coming over for a big lunch. And that's what we're doing on Easter Sunday. I said, Mom, I got to tell you something. I'm not losing this job, yeah. so you can be as pissed as you want to be, but I'm out. Right. I got on a train, went to the studio. I walked in, and there was John and Roy, and they were laughing. And I'll never forget it. And I said, what are you guys laughing at? He goes, man, we wanted to see if you would come in on Easter Sunday. <laughs> Our guy just left. We need you to fill in, so step in. And that was a real... That was ground zero in my career, Easter Sunday, and 1973. And so John and Roy, just to clarify for anyone who may... So Roy is the guy that you had been working with, yeah, and yeah. John is John Lennon. Yeah. And so you were entrusted to work that session, and you did. You impressed him. No, I just worked harder than anybody else. I made a lot of mistakes. They would... You know, I would get... You know, you get yelled at a lot when you're an assistant in the gym. I mean, you know, this... I mean, Roy threw something at me a few times. You know <laughs> what I mean? It was a... The record plant was a tough 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 place yeah there was everything from hazing to you know just everybody being real difficult and Mm -hmm. tough to you but nice people i I always liked everybody there but just it was it was not easy yeah well i know that you wound up working on i think a number of the rock and roll sessions with i did did three albums with john yeah and it was also with with phil Spector, though right and i wonder because in some ways i think in the business and music industry he's you know, on Mount Rushmore, but out in the rest of the world, I don't know that people appreciate his contributions. Can you, did you learn anything in particular from him? Well, it was hard. I learned, first of all, how not to behave because he was gone by then, you know. So I go in the studio and so this is the first day. We John flies me out to California. I've never been on a plane. I fly with him and Roy. I don't think John was there for that. I don't know. But I flew out to California. I've never been on a plane. I've never been in a hotel. They fly me out first class and put me at the Beverly Hills Hotel in a bungalow. <laughs> so I had no idea. I just thought this is hotels alike, right? <laughs> so I do that. And so Roy sends me over to Phil's house to get the musicians, to get the, the setup for the next day because yeah. we're going to start cutting rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So Phil says to me, guitar, bass, drums, keyboard. Now remember, I'm in the lobby. He's yelling from his bedroom. I don't see him. <laughs> Right, he's just yelling, who are you? I said, I'm, I'm the assistant engineer from Royce Carl and John Lennon. Okay, guitar, bass, drums, backing vocals, percussion. So I write it down, I leave, I go the next day. I, go, I never told this story. I go to A&M, the studios that we were working at, yeah. and I get it all ready. I taped every wire. Everything was meticulous. I made the room so comfortable for Roy and everyone. So... I do that, now it's 11 o'clock. So they're supposed to start at 1 o'clock. 12 o'clock, guitar bass, you know, about five guys show up. Mm-hmm. 12.15, another five guys show up. By 2 o'clock, there were 38 musicians. Oh my God. Now I got to redo this room and figure out what the hell I'm going to do yeah. to get all these dirt. Now I'm running around like a <laughs> lunatic. And Phil wasn't there yet. 
So now I finally get it some sort of setup, and Phil comes in, and I think John came in a little later. And he came in in a butcher's coat, <laughs> and he had in his hand a boat horn. So whenever he wanted my attention, he'd oh my blow God. the bullhorn. Oh my God. Right? So it was 38 musicians live. We started cutting the album, and it was pretty crazy. It was pretty, I uh, bet. pretty out there. <laughs> but I guess once you've done that, you're you're ready for anything, probably. I once you're ready for the hospital. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so the thing we have to talk about is that maybe just a year or so after that, 1975, Bruce Springsteen enters the picture, and he's at that point. I don't think that widely known at all, right? This is he's just, Coast Dang. Yeah, and Racing. and he's working on his third album, Born to Run. How do you end up getting connected with him another phone call from Roy to my house now I, I thought I had graduated to engineer on John's album to official engineer right so they were coming over from another studio that didn't work out from the hit factory so Roy calls my house and he says I want you to come in you're very good because I was on the road with these guys with Roy and stuff you're very good at setting up studios for engineers that have never worked in a room before that's, that was, became my thing for some reason. So I said, no way. I'm an engineer. I'm not an assistant. He calls back and gets my mother on the phone. <laughs> I mean, this is how old I was, right? Hey. He said, everything I've done for this guy, I need him in here. I mean, that was it. My mother said, you cannot disrespect this man. This man has taken you off the street. He's in and So naturally, I'm in there working with Bruce Springsteen. Okay? I get back on the train, right? And so I go in the session, and the next day, for some reason, the engineer was gone. So Landau looked at me and said, hey, man, can you do this? Mm-hmm. I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. In life, you could either say absolutely not. Right. Or absolutely. Right. I said absolutely. There you go. And so you guys are working intensely together there. You said that you really got your, you said that everybody at the session lived in fear of him, but that you also took some positive things away, in, among them a uh, work ethic that you've had ever since, right? Well, see, I never had a work ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know, I knew that at five o'clock you'd go home, right? You just wait for five o'clock. You get in, you know, if you can get out a little early, you get out a little early, right? So I see this guy who's stopping at nothing to get the sound that he has in his head and what he wants. And here's a guy, there was another thing that attracted me to him, still does, we're still great friends. You couldn't compromise him. It was the first time I ever met anybody that you didn't have anything that he wanted. It's a very powerful thing. Me, at the time, you could rent me, you know, it's like, you know, but he had that power. That was because he was already broke, basically, right? He was just uncompromising. Right. He was Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. He was Bruce Springsteen then, whether you knew who he was right, or not. Right, right, right. He's the same guy on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. So we got to work, and I started hearing the lyrics, and I'm like, oh, man, this is unbelievable, man. The musicianship, Roy Bitten, all the musicians, they were so fantastic. But the songs were amazing. You know, one of the first songs he worked on was Thunder Road, and it was just so magnificent, you know, and just so. But I was working really hard because I, I was catching up. I was figuring out and make sure that I'm good enough to do this. You know, my first real solo flight as a full engineer and a full album, my responsibility. And we worked our asses off, you know, and 
Bruce was incredible. He was an incredible person. He was an incredible person. They led us through it. We had no idea. We were all scared to death. We just kept doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And nothing was good enough. Nothing was good enough. You know, if you're an insecure kid from anywhere, you're like, oh, my God, it's got to be me. <laughs> Everybody thinks it's them. Right. right? right. The drummer thinks it's the drummer. Piano player thinks it's the piano player. I, I thought it was me. Everybody thinks it's them. And Bruce is one of those guys who just gets out there and just says, again, again. Wasn't there something where he took a disc or something and threw it? Well, that was at the end of the album. That was the end of the album. That didn't make the movie, which is really... It's, it's flying around somewhere on the internet, though. What happened was we finally finished mixing the album. There was one night we were mixing the album, and Roy Bitten came in. He reminded me of this. We were mixing She's the One. Mm-hmm. And the mixes went for nine days straight. Eight songs, nine days straight. We'd fall asleep on like a leather couch just like that. <laughs> right. There's an ugly leather couch in here. <laughs> and it looked exactly like that. Right. Black leather couch. And we would sleep there and, you know, whatever. Maybe go to a hotel, a cheap hotel or something like that. We do the best we can, right? Mm-hmm. About the sixth day, we're mixing She's the One. And I've hit a wall. I can't hear anymore. Because we were monitoring really loud, so I can't hear, and I'm exhausted. I'm drinking coffee, I'm drinking tea, I'm doing everything. Mm-hmm. None of it's working, because there's no drugs around, Bruce. None. Oh, Zero. Wow. Get fired. Mm-hmm. The minute, so I wasn't taking that chance, yeah. right? So I, my assistant engineer, Tom Panunzi at the time, is chewing gum. So I say to him, what are you chewing? So I got Wrigley's gum. I said, give me a piece. He gave me a piece, and he and Roy watched. I didn't know this then. As I took the gum out of the aluminum foil, and I threw the gum in the garbage, and I always had dodgy teeth, and I chewed the aluminum foil. <laughs> and it was a bolt. If you ever want to wake up, right. it was a bolt of electricity <laughs> through my... I still couldn't hear, but I could... I was awake. Right, right. You know, I just kept chewing it. Right. And, you know, and it's a lot of pain. It's very, very painful. If you ever want to try it, it's, <laughs> it's, oh, you got to put it on a cavity, though. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which I had a few. And we finished mixing the album. He gets in the car downstairs. They go on the road. Now, my job is to master the album. So I go to the mastering room. I'm spending days and days trying to figure it out. I think I got it. I end up meeting him in Landau on the road in this show. He's staying at a motel. He doesn't have a stereo system with him. I got all the lackers with him. I went on a train from New York to, I think it was Washington, Rhode Island, somewhere, wherever a train goes from New York. And so we had to go to this record shop to hear it. And it was a record shop. And when you go to a record shop, first of all, you're listening on speakers. You don't know how their needle is. You don't know what the speakers sound like. You don't know anything. You You don't know the acoustics of the room. We didn't know any of that. We just thought, oh, let's, we asked the guy, can we play this record on this thing? And we go in there, and we sit there, and we're listening. He says, I hate it. Bruce says this. Yeah. yeah. That's a two-by-four to the chest, you know? And I'm like, oh, man. I say, sure, man, this stuff sounds really good, you know? I hate it. So we go back to the pool, and we're talking about it, and me, Landau, and him. We get back to the pool, and we're trying to talk him into it. And symbolically or whatever, he just took it. It was a acetate mm-hmm. before you print vinyl. Took the record out and just flung it in the pool, which was like, screw you guys. Oh, man. So at that moment, I'm like, 
I can't be more depressed, more freaked out, more tired. I still haven't slept in, you know, I don't know how long. Yeah. So I look at Lando, he goes, Jimmy, go back home and I'll take care of this. Mm -hmm. So my I brought a friend with me because I didn't want to travel on a train by myself, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, one of those kind of people. <laughs> And he had a bunch of Valium, and I took him. I, I, we may have ended up in Philadelphia for all I know, but I, I just, I just did it. I just took the Valium and crashed on the train. Did Lando? Lando, yeah. As Bruce would say, you know, cooler minds prevailed, and right. and we got to put it out, and that was it. Well, so just to remind people, Born to Run obviously was this massive hit that put Bruce on the map, but it also, I guess, in music circles certainly didn't hurt your standing. And so I wonder, was that a bit disorienting? It seems like the first thing you did after that, you did not approach it in the same, with the same humility and, and hard work that maybe you had approached I approach, Bruce. Every, I approach everything with the same humility and the hard work. It's just that you, you change as a person a little bit. Mm -hmm. Stop breathing your own exhaust a little bit. But I never, ever, ever, and that's why I'm slowing up now, because if I, I, I said if I ever don't work with the same work ethic that I worked on Born to Run, mm -hmm. I will quit. Mm -hmm. And it's painful. It's not like regular work. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people out there, friends of mine who work like that, mm -hmm. people that I know that work like that. But it's physical. It hurts. You know, hurt mentally and hurts physically. So it's a combination of all of a sudden that happening to you and then which is an incredible thing. Mm -hmm. The success of Born Now you're trying to yeah. continue and figure out what you're going to do. Right. Now, now what do I do? <laughs> so Foghat, so this is a British group that you went to work for right afterwards? Well, here's what happened. Yeah. It was, I did a few other things, but it was in between that and darkness, and I'm still engineering. Mm -hmm. So I'm engineering, uh, I don't know, Loudon Wainwright album, or this album. I, I was engineering albums for people, you know? Yeah. And uh, none of them is popular as Born to Run, but... And I get this phone call from Foghat. They want me to produce their album. Now, I'm not a producer yet, but I want to be a producer someday. So I took it. Now, I'm feeling myself. You know what I mean? I'm like, hey, man, I'm, I'm a record producer now. Like, I, I think I even bought a different jacket. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we go out there. I'm an idiot. I bring my girlfriend. And we're working in Long Island somewhere. And one night, I actually fall asleep in the middle of the session. So as we're packing up, leaving, the manager pulls around in his Mercedes. I'll never forget it. He goes, uh, Jimmy, I'm sorry. i got to fire you. So I'm like, oh, shit. Could this be real? Everybody's Because I'm thinking, like, everybody's going to be talking about me. My friends in the neighborhood are going to say, I fucked up. Uh, all this shit, you know. I said it in the movie, you know. You always think people are, think, are watching you and thinking about all your own stuff. They're worried about themselves. They're not thinking about you. It's bullshit. Right. Nobody's thinking about you. No one ever, never. Okay? But in that moment, it was like the low point. Yeah. Oh, my God. So I go in the studio because the only place I knew to go to feel safe. Yeah. So I felt like I was still in it. So I went to the record plant. And by coincidence, it was Patti Smith there. And she was doing Radio Ethiopia. So this is you going back to the place where you'd worked when you were working with Bruce, with Bruce and everybody, then you'd left to go with Foghat, and now you're coming back home. Right. And Patty Smith was there, and she looked over and she was, aren't you the guy that was on Born to Run back and forth, running back and forth all the time, always in the studio, staying all night and all that stuff? I said, yeah. She goes, I want you to produce my record. I said, Patty, four hours ago, I got fired from producing the record. <laughs> she goes, I don't give a shit. I don't know Foghat. I don't give a shit. Right. I want you to produce my record. 
I'm like, how are you going to get this by Clive Davis? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. He's got to let me produce space. He goes, that's my job. Yeah. Of course, Patty was always a little confident, right. you know, <laughs> and very strong. Right. Turns out she had my back. Next thing I know, I'm doing darkness. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through darkness with Bruce, I was an engineer again. Mm-hmm. I got the job with Patty and we started producing her record. It was the most incredible time in my life because I had come because it's important for for young people to know that that are, that are listening mm-hmm. if there are any. Mm-hmm. I came out of Brooklyn with absolutely no tools, no sophistication, no taste, no culture, a blank sheet of paper, probably crumpled up, and all of a sudden, I found myself making six albums with John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, and Patti Smith, who are people who are so so penetrating and moving popular culture and such an effect on popular culture that I learned everything I know today from those six albums. Can we give an example of what, I guess, a a ballsy and effective producer does and maybe just how you ended up, I guess the ultimate example of what what a ballsy and effective producer does would be what happened with Because the Night, right? No, what a ballsy and effective does after he's been fired, if you have any fucking brains, <laughs> is you're a little less ballsy, a lot more humble, right. and you say, okay, I'm in the service business. I got to make Patty Smith comfortable. That's mm-hmm. my job, and make her do great work. So that's what, yeah. <laughs> that's what you do. So we were working on the albums, and you know, and Bruce cut at seventy songs for Darkness. He only had nine for Born to Run. But he has 70 songs for Darkness. And there were two songs, Fire and Because the Night, that he just felt were too romantic for the album, for the sound, didn't want it. So Bruce and I were driving once to Corny Island, go to the beach out or something in Corny Island. Another thing a knucklehead from Brooklyn, Italian Brooklyn does when he has some success, is after Born to Run, I bought an orange Mercedes, <laughs> which was pretty absurd. I remember Bruce saying to me, what is that? I said, it's a Mercedes. He goes, what's a Mercedes? I said, oh, man. So we get in this orange Mercedes with the top down, right. and we're driving out to Coney Island. And I said, Bruce, you know, I'm, I'm producing Patty. He goes, that's, a, that's great, man. No, that's great. I said, yeah. I said, but she had a great album, man. We don't have the single to introduce the album. You know, we don't have it. He goes, well, what do you think? And I said, well, like, you got this song because tonight. Are you going to use it? He said, nah, man, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to finish it. I'm not going to use it. It's not right for this album. I said, man, can I have a shot at cutting it with her? He said, you think so? I said, I know it. I know the record's a hit record with a woman singing those lyrics because the Laura lyrics weren't done, but it was a very powerful, mm-hmm. very powerful in charge kind of record. You know, I said, if Patty sings this song. It would be like Patty singing It's My Life by the Animals mm. or Satisfaction, like well, some kind of record like that, you know? So I took the tape, a cassette, and I brought it to Patty. She said, no, I don't do this. I don't want to do other people's songs. I don't. I, mean, I love Bruce Springsteen, but I don't want to do it. So it took me about two weeks to talk her into it. <laughs> and then I kept waiting. She was meeting Fred Sonic Smith. They, were, they got married eventually, but in the beginning of their relationship. And every time she comes to the studio, I say, hey, man, where's the song? Right. I didn't do it yet. Where's the song? And one night, she's waiting for a telephone call from Fred, and she saw the cassette, she put it on, and she said, love is a ring, a telephone. That was it. And one night, she pretty much finished the she lyrics. She finished the whole song, went and we cut it two days later, and it was a goddamn miracle. It was a miracle for my life. I owe those people so much, because that was a record I produced. Yeah. And then... 
I got Tom Petty, I got Dire Straits, I got all these different people from that song. Well, let me ask you, I mean, one of the things that I'm sure has come up over the years, just from people outside of the business who ask you, who, you know, who've interviewed you. We had Clive Davis on this podcast about a year ago, and I had the same question for him. He's never really made music. I know you were in a band, but mm-hmm. in high school, you know, it was I don't think Clive even knows how to read music. He was saying, and maybe I don't know if you do either. I don't I know. know how to read music. No. no. So there. You, so what do you guys have that? other people who don't have that kind of background oh. music have that allow well, you to do this. I, Clive and I had different, we had different things because he was an executive at Sony. I was a recording engineer producer. Mm-hmm. So I was living in a recording studio. That's a very different background yeah. than being an executive. Mm-hmm. So we both like music and we both had a feel for music but he came at it from a completely different place and completely different kind of music. Mm-hmm. And I came from, you know, Patty, Bruce, Lennon, and those guys. And even though Patty was on Clive's label, but it just it was coming out from two different places. I was a studio rat. I'd worked 18 years every day in a studio. But I mean, what is it? If you had to sum up what your greatest skill was as a producer, I think it's the skill that Clive has as well. We can we can connect the dots mm-hmm. that other people don't see. Like you see, because the night you go, oh my God, Patty, you know, this, that, okay. And you see what things could be rather than what they are. So you're working with Tom Petty after that, and then I guess simultaneously dating Stevie Nicks. Yeah. And then talk about connecting the dots, right? Yeah. But there's not always that, just that trick. There's a lot of tricks, but that's one. You know, you see somebody like Tom Petty, you hear the second album, and you hear what it could be mm-hmm. if it was recorded in a different way. Mm-hmm. And when you could hear what what it could be, I don't listen to music as what it is. I mean, sometimes I put music, Bob Dylan on, I'm not looking to change Bob Dylan's records, but when I hear music, when I see an artist, I say, okay, even if if it stays exact, sometimes, like Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor walks in with a record, it is what it is, and I don't say a word. You know, Dre, The Chronic, I don't say a word. But sometimes with other artists or records, I'll say, wow, this is so cool. It could be this. And I try to work with the artist to get him to, or her, to expand and do what they're doing. And you just know the first time you hear, usually, is that, I mean, let's take the example of you 2 which I think was brought to your attention by your wife at the time. Maybe you can share how, but was it, is that the kind of thing where you hear them and you know that there's something you can do there? What I did was I saw Bono. I went down there and I saw Bono. And at the time, he was, I don't know if you know, if you saw it, he was climbing the rafters of the Us Festival, yeah, right? it's crazy. And I was always looking for that energy that Bruce had. Yeah. You know, and I said, oh, shit, there's that energy. And I was a little, not bored, but I was concerned because now I'm like, I'm 29 years old. It was 1982, I think, or just about to turn 30. And I'm working with great artists, mm-hmm. but very mature ones. Bob Seger, Stevie Nicks, and I'm headed in that, that direction of, you know, California hit records. I started out in New York and, you know, aggressive music, right. you know. And Tom was sort of like in the middle, which was great. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I had to do U2, but I had to overcome. I'm sure U2 didn't want Bob Seger's producer. <laughs> different country, you know, a different kind of thing, right. right? So I had to convince him. And, and this is uh, after your, your wife's interviewing them or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I followed them to Dublin, took my <laughs> wife and my engineer, right. 
in my own pillow and my own water, which is very, very famous uh, in, the, in the circles of YouTube. Right. Stayed at the Jack Benny Suite at the hotel there, mm -hmm. which was, I can't believe Jack Benny stayed there. <laughs> and they agreed to do a live album with me. So we flew back to New York. We mixed on their Blood Red Sky. I guess by the early 80s, this you're saying this would have been roughly what 83. year? 83. 83. I mean, part of the issue was that they were, they'd had a flop recently, right? And they needed to be relevant again. I don't know again. if it was a flop. It was no different than Tom Petty's second album or Bruce's right. second album. The first one got critical acclaim, and then all, they were expecting so much from the second album, right. and it just didn't go there. Right. So it's not a flop, but it's just not what they everybody wanted it to be. But it sounds like you told war, them. Actually, war was right before that. And war should have been bigger than it was in America, but it wasn't for some reason. There'll be you two fans out saying, I've had war from day one, but I'm talking about in the masses. Right, you know? right, right. But it sounds like at that time when you're first connecting with Bono, you said something to him that I believe was also not to keep coming back to Clive, but it, I think he had said this at, you know, that this was the key is don't put out the album until you know what the standout single is. Or, they, or Bono said that to you, right? We're not going to put out. No, this was much later. This is 10 years later. Okay. So what was this though? So now they've, they've had up. Now and downs. I'm just doing what you two want to do. I'm recording their live album and I become friends with them. Yeah. So they, they go and they didn't work with me on the next two albums. The uh, Unforgettable Fire, which I really wanted to do, and they did, they went to Berlin with uh, Daniel Daniel Lenoir and Eno and did Joshua Tree. Mm -hmm. Now here's the truth: if I had done Unforgettable Fire and Joshua Tree, they would be nowhere near as great the records that they are today. Period. End of story. So then I meet them after that, and we do Rattle and Hum together because mm -hmm. we were doing a, a charity Christmas record, special, very special Christmas. So. We do that, it's massively successful, right? In really. Your dad, right? Yeah, that and, but and Rattle and Hum was massively successful. Right. So now I'm getting restless and I'm like, you know, I had a kid in 1988, my son Jamie. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I don't want to get home at four or five in the morning anymore. Ah. And then David Geffen sells his company. And I go, man, this is my friend. He's from Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn. This guy just made. $500 million, I'm gonna do it okay, but I ain't doing that. I feel like I'm working as hard as him and doing a similar thing. Mm -hmm. I said, I wanna start a record company. Mm -hmm. And out of that, I told a bunch of people, and they, somebody introduced me, David actually, one of the first people, David and Eric Eisen introduced me to Ted Field, and then Tony D, Tom's manager, and somebody else, I forget, I'm really sorry if you're out there, but introduced me, to, but David was the, was the real, linked to Ted. Was there also, didn't Paul McGinnis? Paul McGinnis. U2's manager. Paul McGinnis told Ted to meet with me and Ted said to him, something happened, I don't know who met first, either Paul told Ted and then Ted went to David to ask him what he thought, right. whatever it was. But you were both thinking along the same lines, it would be nice to start a label of our own. Yeah, and they put us together. I hope we know the story. That worked out really well. Yes, so Interscope started, I guess, in January 91, and at that point, I think if the numbers that I saw are correct, $20 million joint venture with Warner Music and I guess Atlantic Group was part of them. And that was Doug Morris, right, who's in the docu-series. Yeah. So at that time, what was your vision of the, the mission for Well, for what, happened was, what happened was I had a deal with Doug that was smaller than that about starting my own label. Mm -hmm. And Ted had these two guys, John McClain and Tom Wally, who were incredible. 
So they had that. I had Atlantic. And what we did was we married the two. Mm-hmm. So I brought half the funding, and Ted brought half the funding. And you immediately clicked with Ted? Immediately. Uh-huh. And so now you guys are going to have this relatively small label compared to the majors, right? How did you well, stack crazy. up? crazy. Because Geffen sold his record company, the majors started 14 labels that year, mm-hmm. all with $50 million of funding. Imago, this, that. There were so many of them. They were falling off the shelves. <laughs> but Ted and I really connected. Ted's a real talent. He's a really talented guy. He's got a great feel for seeing through, like, bullshit. You know, and Tom Wally, brilliant a music guy, John McClain, brilliant human being. So we had the four of us, and that was a really good combination. And we all hit off each other, and and it really uh, what we were going for. We was going for nineteen seventies Atlantic. Mm-hmm. We were going for Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Ray Charles, and Aretha Franklin. We wanted the best of urban and rock music, and that's what we were going for. And there was something also you said, I think, about the idea that. Rather than just executives, you wanted a company of people like you who were producers at heart, but were now... Well, what I did was I realized I couldn't produce these people, mm-hmm. but I knew how to produce producers because <laughs> I am a producer, right? right? I was a producer much more than I was an executive. So we started making deals with producers, and that turned out really good. And just to list some of the talent that I think in the early days you guys worked with there, obviously the first example which comes up and gets chuckles in the docuseries is Rico Suave. I was convinced, they all thought I was going to bring in a U2 band or something like that, right. you know, a young band that sounded like that. Right. But I was walking by, I was coming back from lunch one day and I was walking by all the secretaries and everybody's playing this Rico Suave record in Spanish. And the girls are going, this guy is so gorgeous. They're going crazy. <laughs> I said, Tom. We're going to sign this guy. We can't <laughs> sign this guy. This can't be our first We're record. Signing. I said, I don't give a shit what you say. We're signing this record because we need a hit. Right. We can't start out with some band. It's going to take five years to break. Right. No one's going to give a shit about us in five years. We're going to be gone. Right. So we signed it, and it came out, and it was a big hit. I'll send you a haul every night. Rico, suave. You know? <laughs> then we signed Marky Mark. Right. And then, then Tom brought in Primus, Helmet, and Tupac, which was an mm-hmm. awesome mm-hmm. move to the hoop. Then mm-hmm. John brought me Dre. In between there was also Gwen Stefani, right? Right, and she was the first woman signed to Interscope. She wow. was right in there, yeah. Wow. She, I went down, I saw her. We would all work together, you know? I went down there and I saw her in a, a rehearsal hall. How old was she at the time, probably? I think she was 19. 19. You know, and she was playing. And I said to her, you know, Gwen... This is fabulous. But I just worked with three incredible people that took three albums to make it. Mm-hmm. Three albums is six years. If you can be patient and learn your skills for six years, you're going to be massive. And that's how I looked it up from the beginning. And that was pretty much on, on the right time frame, right? It was spookily right? on the right yeah. time, you know, but I was just, um, I don't know, I was saying something to sign her, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I believed it, but, uh, you know. It was... I mean, the, well, the one that, I guess the relationship that in the end is has been the as important as any was also one that in, in a lot of ways was as unlikely as any, and that's as you you brought up, Dr. Dre, what brought him into your office and what about him appealed to you, a guy who up to that point really did not have much to do with hip-hop or gangster rap or anything like that? nothing about hip-hop. 
zero. I just knew that it sounded crappy because <laughs> I didn't like the way they made their records with all the, uh, this, you know, they had the 808s and the bass and all that stuff. It was very muddy. And I loved Hank Shockley, what he was doing, but I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Drake comes in my office. What I know now is with these live musicians, and I put it on my tenoys that I've had since I was, God, I must, I was a, I was a kid when I bought those in England. And maybe 20 years before, and I put the record on, the CD, mm-hmm. and I'm like, this is right up there, if not killing Pink Floyd, some of those great records, you and know? the CD is the chronic, which he's brought in yeah. with Suge Knight. They show with up Suge at your Knight, office. Yeah. And, and you, what did you respond to in it? Just the lyrics or the emotion? Sonics. The Sonics. Sonics. Because so, he I, knew what he was doing I with said, it. this is something I've never heard before. And you didn't initially realize that he had done it himself. I didn't, but I we talked about yeah, it. Yeah. I asked him, I said, you engineer this? He said, yes. I said, well, then who produced it? He goes, I did. I said, oh, man. And to myself, yeah. I said, this guy will define Interscope. I just knew it, man. I just knew. I saw the, because when I met Snoop, I said, oh, I get it. This is Mick and Keith. <laughs> they make music that scares you, right. but it's so good that it brings you in, you know? But the, the big hurdle, I wonder how you figured you would deal with is that at the time, none of the radio stations were playing gangster rap. It was worse than that. No, there were five lawsuits against them that I had to clear up. Against these specific guys? Yeah. So when they come to you with something like nothing but a G-thing, how do you think you're even going to get it played? I don't. I just know that it's great, right? And I know that it'll connect. So what I did was I told my guys, I first I went to MTV. I said, you got to play this. We don't play hip-hop during the day. We play it on MTV Raps. I said, no, 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 no. I said, this is Guns N' Roses. They said, when are we going to play it? I said, play it next to Guns N' Roses. If it doesn't work, I will never come in this room again. <laughs> and then I said, my guys, make me 51-minute spots and buy the biggest radio stations in the world. Don't intro or outro the record. Just play the goddamn hook. And the phones exploded, and that's when we all got in trouble because that's when Congress's kids started taking the records home, <laughs> and all hell broke loose. Well, really, so in very short order, Gangsta Rap, because you're now getting involved, I guess, with overall with Death Row Records, right? Not just these guys. Gangsta Rap became a profitable part, a very profitable part of your business, but also, as you're referencing, a very problematic part, right? Because people are blaming you for and the music that you're putting out for real-world violence. Do you think there was any legitimacy to that? I know that it caused big problems for you guys with your Warner deal. Well, here's the deal, man. Whether you agree with it or not, whatever happened, was ever happening is reality, and you got to deal with it. You know, they were coming down on us really hard. The government was, but there was, some, there was a little secret behind it because the politicians get what they want. They get to say that bad lyrics are bad for kids and all that stuff, and they get to get political points for that and whatever it is. But the parent company, Time Warner, had the cable bill, and Dole had the cable bill. Waiting to be heard in front of Congress. Right. Yeah. So Jerry Levin says to me, man, after a bunch of, you'll see it in the movie, yeah, like, yeah. it goes, nothing like that ever happened in music, or in any entertainment, but went on in those three years. I, I'll say that, I'll stand toe-to-toe with anybody. Yeah. Nothing in entertainment, is, I mean, so many people, A, died. It was dangerous. It was all the stuff after the Source Awards, right? It was all so crazy, yeah. right? So Jerry Wynn said to me, "You know, I got to sacrifice something." I said, "Sacrifice me," and I so I go to my lawyers. Always, which you'll see in the thing, I'm, him and Ted and and our other lawyer Skip Brittenham, we're, we're making a deal with trying to keep us in. 
And they said, we got, we got an offer for $150 million if we get rid of death row. I said, whoa, man. Meaning Time Warner wants to, we'll pay you $150 million for death row, but then we'll... No, I'll pay you $150 million and we will get rid of death If row. you'll get rid of death row. That's right. And you say you're not going to do that. And I do, inst- it's more than saying I won't. I would go in bananas. Bananas. And this was the part of the docuseries with Alan Grubman saying, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. But basically, the way it was resolved, you guys bought out... Time Warner stake in yep. Death Row, hundred and six million. And then we sold to MCA. Right. So they become now, at which now Doug Morris comes back because he's now running that place, right? That's right. So you know, to come back to just one other thing before we get to the Beats Apple portion of your life here, you've talked about again about you know to come back to humility that is important to you, very important to you, and to successful, most successful people. I think it really comes into play with the example of how you wound up with a white rapper from Michigan. Look, because we're open. First of all, I'm open. Yeah. I'm open to anything. I think talent can come from anywhere. It could look like anything. I don't care what it is. I'm just completely open. Every day I wake up, I say, everything that I know could already be wrong. If you approach every day like that, you're going to have your ears open and your heart open, and you're going to just listen, I, including advice. Yeah. So I've always done that, you know, and that's always just who I've been. So, you know, a kid comes in my office. He says, he's actually he's my intern for the day. And he said, I saw this rap Olympics last night. And this guy was great. I said, I'll tell you what. Cause I, could somebody help me when I was his age? I said, give me, give me a CD or something, a tape or whatever it is. And I'll play it for Dre. And he did. And I played it for Dre. And the rest is extraordinary. It was Eminem. And Dre and he obviously really clicked as well. But There's a scene in the documentary that I'd watch a documentary just for that. Is Dre in the studio the first day? Mm-hmm. I've never seen this on. I never seen this a video of this in ten minutes writing their first hit record, which is "My Name Is." Yeah, I've never seen a video of the first day of a session, two guys recording a song that that big a hit. It was incredible. I think it's the. You know, I, I know. I've, ne- I've seen a lot of music footage. <laughs> right. I've never seen that. No, it was amazing. So by 2006, you and Dre had known each other for over a decade and had obviously become very close. At that point, the way I understand it, he comes to you and he says he's got there. They want to somebody wants to do a sneaker deal. Well, what with happened him. was Dre was complaining about the sound of music on the. We were we were working with Apple mm-hmm. already on iTunes and the iPod. We were helping tune iTunes and we were doing commercials for them. We were bringing the music in, and I was really friends with Steve and Eddie, and it was going great. So Dre says, you know, man, can we get these earbuds to sound a little bit better? Or, you know, the other companies are putting them out. If Apple starts, everybody will follow them. I said, I don't know. I'll talk to Steve. You know, so I went and I talked to Steve and Eddie. They said, well, let's start with tuning, getting, getting iTunes. First, we went in there. We helped tune iTunes. Mm-hmm. And we're working on things. And now Napster's happening at the same time. So I'm like, oh, we're screwed. Record business is over, toast, finished. Just done. Right. How do you beat free? And now I'm looking for ways to get in with business with our artists using our power and popular culture to market it. Mm-hmm. So I tried a few things, you know, thought about a few things. And one day I was walking down the beach, man, and Drake said, come on, I got to talk to you, man. He says, my lawyer told me Reebok or somebody called me up to sell sneakers. I said, Drake, no one cares how you dress. No one. Because <laughs> I know I wear the same Air Force Ones every day. Sure. I said, right. No one is going to care. I said, Fuck sneakers. Let's do speakers. <laughs> and the reason why I said speakers was because it rhymed. Right. <laughs> but what that did, what it triggered in me, yeah. was we're going to fix Dre's problem. We're going to go make our own audio equipment and sell it. 
And in terms of, you know, you guys are not people that build equipment, but you know how it should work. Is that that was the rationale, yeah. right? Yeah, we know we, you can hire people to do that. Right, right. You know, right. and if you have a vision, you can hire people. And you know just if it sounds right or not. We wanted it to sound the way we hear it in the studio. We weren't audiophile. We didn't we didn't like audiophile. We wanted the, that when you play a record back in the studio, when you go down to visit somebody, they're playing for you on great speakers that are booming to get you excited. That's what our headphones, that's what Beats is. Beats is the way musicians want their music. Using not some reference, and it's a, that's all nonsense as far as I'm concerned. And, and we we were tortured for a long time, but you know what? We won the war. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing, if I remember correctly. You guys debuted the the product the same week that Lehman Brothers went down, and same yet, day, same day. Yeah. And yet, you guys came away not only unscathed, but taking a huge share of the market. A great idea with a great product with great marketing can cut through anything. And just as an example of the marketing, how did LeBron James get into Beats? I was producing a movie called More Than a Game for LeBron with Maverick, his partner, Maverick, mm-hmm. Maverick Carter. And it was done, and Maverick was in my office, and I got my first box of Beats. I say, hey, Maverick, try these. Give a pair to LeBron. Let me know what he thinks. He calls me back, and he says, LeBron loves these things, man. He wants 15. He's going to Shanghai. <laughs> I said, great, man. Let them wear them when they come off the plane, right. man. He said, I'll try. <laughs> man, when I was sitting home at NBC and that group of guys came off the plane wearing those headphones. The whole Olympic basketball team. Beats just changed overnight, man. It was mm-hmm. just boom. And then you guys have always had great commercials and things as well with, and we with had your music. All the videos, Interscope's yeah. videos, you know. Why in 2014 was Beats worth $3.2 billion to Apple? We made a deal with Apple. Apple and I wanted to work together. Mm-hmm. So, especially Eddie Q and Tim. Mm-hmm. So I went to them and said, guys, Apple cannot lose music. Streaming is going to win. Apple can't lose music. Took about two years, right? In 2014, finally they said we're ready. By that time, Beats is a very successful business. Mm-hmm. So most of the price came from the Beats business. Mm-hmm. Now, since then, the Beats business has doubled. Mm-hmm. So Apple's done extremely well with the overall deal. Eddie always teases me and says, I got you for free. <laughs> and uh, he, But I'm, I'm very happy with the deal. Yeah. And they got the streaming service. They got Beats Music. We converted it into Apple Music. And now it's got 50 million subscribers and on its way to being something great. And it's evolved into dealing more with all kinds of wireless things that are, you weren't probably thinking about at the, at the outset, right? Just different. It, the whole product line has, yeah, has well, changed. Yeah, Apple helped. Yeah. You know, Luke and Luke Woods done an incredible job. So why, if these reports are true, why are you leaving in August? This is a personal thing. Is it? Yeah. You know, and I, I'm never leaving Apple. I'm just going to, I'm not going to be on the guy in the front line anymore. You know, like, I help the guys in Beats today, you know what I mean? I, I'm having dinner with Oliver, uh, Apple Music, Thursday night. So I'm going to be a consultant. It's the only word I can think of, you know? And I love Eddie. I love Apple. I love Tim. I love the team. I love all the people up there, you know? And we did great together. And we'll continue to grow. Because streaming isn't anywhere near finished. The idea is not finished yet. I have some ideas, and I'd like to, I'd like to see it finished, you know? But it doesn't mean that You're not I'm going to be, be gone. I'm not. I'm going to be home and my thing in Malibu and Mapleton and my, my house. I'm going to be... You know, doing things, my wife and my children. Right. But I'm also going to consult. I'll have lunch with any of these guys, you know, and and we got mutual respect. I love Oliver. 
but it's got to move because the record business is got still has a massive problem. Yeah, massive problem. What's the biggest issue? The biggest problem in the music business right now is that ninety percent of the streaming is post two thousand. And it's not just because there's young people on there. So young people play more music mm-hmm. than older people, right? That's going to catch up. And then all these new music deals. Of course, the bands are getting publicity. They're getting really great deals, the labels. Sooner or later, that squeeze is going to come. Mm-hmm. And the streaming services problem is they're not unique enough. They're not individualized. They're not, they have no differentiation. They're all the same. Mm-hmm. So what I'm working here with these guys, and my what I really want to help is differentiate Apple Music from everything else. From the other streamers. Because otherwise, if it's not differentiated, it becomes a price thing. Right. And before you know, this big companies are backing it up and writing as a lost leader, and then that's not music. Right. With the last minute, can we end with what we call rapid fire, just the first thing that comes to your mind? By the way, I don't have that kind of mind, but I will try. <laughs> well, thank you for trying. Which comes first more often with great songs, music or lyrics? The only thing I know is who I've worked with, mm-hmm. but Elton John, it's obviously both. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I think mm-hmm. Bernie used to give the lyrics first. Mm-hmm. I think Hal David and Burt Bacharach were like that as well. But for the kind of people that I worked mm-hmm. with, when somebody sits down and says, screen door slams... Mary's Dressways, that's when it's the best music, when the guy or girl has the idea, the thought, and the whole thing, and it just flows. You know, you write it in five minutes, but you have the idea. So I don't, I know that producers now, and that's, this is not hip-hop. Hip-hop, you get the track and you write on top of it. So I can't speak to hip-hop, because I never made a hip-hop record. But sure. as far as rock and roll is concerned, yeah. and pop songs, those are the ones that I really like. What's the best song that you've ever been associated with? You had to pick one that... that it's, could... very, it's very, very, very simple. It's not the best song. It's the most important song, and that's Because of the Night. Mm-hmm. What's the song, yours or someone else's, that you would listen to if you could only listen to one other one song for the rest of your life? Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. You said, quote, my proudest thing in my career is that I was able to change it three times, three different careers. Why do you think it was that you were able to reinvent yourself that many times? Because of that whole thing about everything that I know could possibly be wrong. And I get bored. Mm-hmm. And then I want to do something. And I feel like what I'm doing is really not cool anymore in the sense that I look at cool. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to move and I want to pivot and I want to do something else. And I want, I, you know, and, you know, I've had, I really had four careers. I was a producer, Interscope, Beats, now Apple. Yeah. It's amazing. So I've had four careers. And very different, very different in many ways. Yeah. Which of today's music artists stand the best chance of being remembered alongside the ones that really define your career early on. How old? 20s, 30s, 40s, people that have broken through since you got into running a label. Right. I would say uh, there's a lot. I mean, Kendrick Lamar is the youngest that comes to my mind right away. I mean, Jay-Z, you know what I mean? I think Beck will be a guy that'll just be remembered for a very, very long time. I think, I think what Adele does is great. There's a lot of them, you know. I, know I love this Gaga. new. I love this new Florence and the Machine record. Yeah, I just yeah, really yeah. love it. And there's so many artists. I, I, I you know, so no one knows because you don't know who they're going to become. I mean, Jay's along the way. We know Jay is locked. Right. Right. Beyonce is Beyonce. Right. But I think you're talking more about people that have one or two albums. That's what the right. question seems like. And that is, you know, Kendrick would be at the top of my list. After 50 years of listening to, or more than that, of listening to music live on the radio, on Beats products, how is your hearing? I'm down on my top end. I'm like, excuse me every now and then, you know, but was it worth it? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And last question is, you know, there's been this tremendous docuseries that is the reason we're here talking today and, and what has probably provoked more awareness of your work and curiosity in you as a person than anything prior to it. And I just wonder what it was like living through the experience of that going out to the world. And I guess more specifically, was there anything about seeing it and all the things people had to say about you that well, surprised I you? I wasn't, because it wasn't a, the documentary wasn't about that to me. The documentary was about Alan's idea of taking a white guy from a racially charged neighborhood and a black guy from a racially charged neighborhood, how they came up in music and then got together in the, around 1990 and had to stay together under really difficult circumstances that plugged into a lot of the fears that we grew up on. Mm-hmm. And that's what this movie's about. And when, when a white and a black guy or a white girl and a black woman or a, wh- or, or a white woman or a white man, when you put those two cultures together, it could be incredible. And if any, this movie does anything, I'm hoping it gets people to start companies with a white person and African-American because the culture's clashing in there and doing their thing is magical. And that's what I hope comes out of this movie. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's a treat. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.